Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest, Michael Strong. He has been with us before, and we are so fortunate to have Michael back with us. He is CEO of Radical Social Entrepreneurship, and believe me, he's a radical social entrepreneur. And he has started several nonprofits himself. Um, These have really been organizations with the intention of doing good in the world. We'll talk more about that. He is the author of Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems, and previously author of The Habit of Thought, From Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice. Always great to talk with you, Michael. Welcome to Leading Conversations. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's great to be back. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm so glad we could do this. It's, you know, the last time you were here was 2009, which oh, seems forever ago. I know. I know. You had yeah. just published the book, Be the Solution, mm-hmm. um, and you were working in flow, and we'll talk more about that. But first, tell all of us where you are today. I am in uh, Catskill, New York, two and a half hours north of New York City, in the beautiful Hudson River Valley. Oh, nice. Very nice. There is, you know, something special about upstate New York. Well, it is. And uh, my my wife has a shop in uh, Hudson, New York, which is nearby. So she sells, she has an African skincare company that sells high-end uh, African skincare products. And Hudson is named one of the um, coolest small towns in America. So we're at cool small town America. That's well. Of course, I would not expect any less of you, Michael, than to live in a cool town. <laughs> it's like there you are. So, well, that's great. So you are not only an entrepreneur, but you are married to an entrepreneur. You are surrounded Big time. by them. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, great. actually, when my wife and I go off to speak, uh, I'm the opening act, and uh, she's. <laughs> I, I think I'm a good speaker, but she's a much better speaker than I am. So uh, everybody, people like my talk, and then they love her talk. So uh, oh, I'm the great. entrepreneur behind the entrepreneur. That is fabulous. That's fabulous. What is her name? Magat Wade. She's a Senegalese entrepreneur. Oh, fabulous. Well, I know you did a lot of work um, on the African continent for a long while. Um, I remember that way back when... Just before you, I think before you had started the organization Flow, were you not doing work in Senegal then? No, no, I became involved in work with Senegal uh, through my wife. So 
Okay. Promoting Entrepreneurial Solutions World Problems. One of our programs was called Accelerating Women Entrepreneurs. We believe right. that while micro-entrepreneurship was great, we wanted uh, developing world women running 20, 40, $50 million businesses, $100 million businesses. And that's how I met wife, my wife and I became involved in helping her with her projects. Oh, fabulous. That's really nice. You've always had, in the short time that I have known you, um, you know, you have struck me as somebody who has been very concerned about making the world a better place for all. And, you know, we hear that phrase a lot these days, but somehow you have managed to incorporate it into just about everything that you do. What got you involved in this whole genre of, you know, really wanting to do something in the world that mattered? Well, I, I think a lot of young people are inclined in that direction. Um, I, I perhaps spent more more time focused on that uh, in my academic work. And then I started almost by accident as an entrepreneur when I was uh, first consulting in Chicago public schools, training teachers mm-hmm. to lead Socratic discussions. And that led to a full-time job in Alaska training teachers to lead Socratic discussions. We were on soft money, and when we ran out of soft money, some parents asked me to start a school for them. And at that point, I had been in school myself most of my life. I had no business experience, and so I was mm. kind of uh, entrepreneurship was dumped in my lap, so to speak. And from there on out, I spent 15 years creating schools entrepreneurially, created both uh, private and charter schools. And uh, and then I met John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods, and he and I both saw entrepreneurship as a path to making the world a better place. And since then, I've been involved in diverse product projects uh, in which entrepreneurial solutions lead to a better world. You know, I, I, as you you say that, as so it, that just kind of flows right out of your mouth, as if you know that would just be what everybody would do. <laughs> like it sounds so easy, Michael, when you say it. <laughs> you know, and yet you know, and I know you know this that many people talk about it, about doing something that matters, and often what we hear tagged right on the tail of that is, but. You know, I have a family to support, or I have to do something where I can make money, quote-unquote. It seems like people are moving away from that as a valid reason why they can't do something that they really want to do in the world. Do you see that? Well, I I do. I I would say one of the things that uh, I've become very much involved with is the whole uh, social, moral, emotional ecosystem around you know, entrepreneurial lifestyle. Sometimes when people hear the term entrepreneur, they think of you know, spreadsheets and uh, the nuts and bolts of business, all of which are crucial and important. But I also think it's really important to be supported uh, socially and emotionally if you're going to take the risk of being an entrepreneur. Uh, because without that, if, if everybody around you is skeptical and pessimistic, then you're going to have a hard time doing it because it it is going to be hard. There are going to be lots of struggles for sure. Right, right. So, you know, you have this organization. You are CEO of Radical Social Entrepreneurship. What is the difference between entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship? And then what is the difference between social entrepreneurship and radical social entrepreneurship? 
Great question. So, you know, entrepreneurs start businesses. I mean, you can also talk about entrepreneurs starting nonprofits and so forth, but the traditional notion is that an entrepreneur is uh, looking for a profit opportunity in the marketplace. Nothing wrong with that. There are lots of uh, good and legitimate profit opportunities. Um, social entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs who want to um, include a social mission in what they're doing. So for a social entrepreneur, it's not enough that there be a revenue stream of some kind, uh, although some social entrepreneurs do it strictly on a nonprofit basis. A lot of them have both nonprofit and for-profit aspects. But a social entrepreneur is looking for an opportunity to do good by means of an entrepreneurial initiative. And then finally, uh, in you know, microfinance, and uh, Muhammad Yunus, who created the Grameen Bank, the most famous microfinance institution, is a prominent example of uh, social entrepreneurship. Uh, but, you know, I would say in, in a sense when I was starting schools, that was social entrepreneurship. All the people starting charter schools, I would describe them as social entrepreneurs. So anybody starting a project like that makes the world better. With respect to radical social entrepreneurs, you know, originally the term radical is going to the roots of the problem. And as I spent uh, the last 10 years working with social entrepreneurs and conscious capitalists in a variety of fields, just looking at developing world poverty, uh, there's a lot of evidence now that the legal systems are the cause of poverty versus prosperity. So if you look at East Germany versus West Germany, North Korea versus South Korea, in both cases, there was one culture, but dramatically different economic outcomes, depending on the legal system. To take a different example, if you look at immigrants from Jamaica or Mexico or Honduras in the United States, they make 10 to 20, sometimes 100 times more or more than uh, their families back home. Um, you know, an unskilled laborer simply crossing the border from Mexico can earn 20 times as much by crossing the border, and the cost of living is not that much more. The average Jamaican family in the United States has a higher net wealth um, than does the average uh, Anglo-American family. So there, there, there's a lot of evidence that uh, the legal system one is in can determine prosperity. So with the radical social entrepreneurs, one of the biggest projects that I've begun looking at is how to provide uh, zones with world-class legal systems in developing nations. Because if we can do that, I think we've found a way to rapidly reduce poverty. So I'm, I'm actively involved in a project in Honduras on that. To go in a different direction, I think another aspect of radical social entrepreneurs that I learned about in my course of being an educator is that for a lot of people, I would say culture is a fundamental substrate in obtaining a good education. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, say, technological solutions in education, but I think that if somebody is not inclined to learn through their culture, having more convenient education online is not going to change things. Uh, okay. I've spent a lot of time working in inner-city America, and in inner-city America, I can turn a classroom around, but it takes me a year of working steadily day by day because there is often a culture that's, you know, in some cases antagonistic to learning. In other cases, just they just don't know, understand how to begin and get value and to enjoy yeah. the learning process. So in a lot of ways, I see radical social entrepreneurs as insofar as culture and law are some of the substrates that are preventing people from having better, happier, more successful lives. Uh, we're trying to focus on the those substrates of culture and law. Well, so when you say law, the legal system, are you 
discerning that as different from government? Well, um, we'll get into that. That's a good question. So one of the models is in 2004, Dubai created the Dubai International Financial Center. Dubai wanted to be a financial center. They have Sharia law, UAE Sharia law. They looked around the world and look at London, Hong Kong, Singapore, Chicago, Sydney. All of these financial centers use British common law. And the rulers of Dubai were terribly pragmatic, and they just said, okay, well, let's put British common law there. So in a 110-acre zone, they actually hired a retired British commercial law judge to administer British common law within those 110 acres, and as a consequence, Dubai is now a world-class financial center. It was a spectacular success. So in that case, you know, there are all sorts of, uh, you know, common law has this huge caseload that, you know, with complex corporate cases can, you know, let judge, judges know pretty much uh, how to think about a particular case. And Sharia law did not have that. Uh, Latin civil law has a very different approach. So in the first instance, from um, say government is the legal system. And at a different level, Rwanda recently went switched from French civil law to British common law, in part because they saw British common law as better for business. Rwanda is trying to attract investors. So there, the issue of governance is how you make collective decisions. Um, and there are collective decisions that need to be made that are separate from the legal system that one uses within which to make those decisions. That makes sense. Okay. Well, I, you know, I, I as I hear you talk about that, I think, you know, it requires somebody who really does go beneath what's obvious as a problem, who really can get to the core, become real radical, you now look radically at an issue, to, to get to that understanding. And that is not something that you hear about very much. Do you, have you been able to successfully share this idea, share this understanding so that people really can apply it? Well, that's, that's another good question, and I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, having me on because I think all of this stuff is so fun and exciting, but it, I realize it is a little bit esoteric. Um, <laughs> in, Honduras, in Honduras, in 2011, the Honduran government passed legislation allowing zones with their own legal systems, and uh, I signed a, an agreement with the Honduran government to develop one of those last year, and then the Honduran Supreme Court voted against it the legislation authorizing that agreement. This year they've passed new legislation, but it turns out there are, there's something called new institutional economics, and it's, I think, one of the most important fields in economics. It's kind of a subfield. There have been between four and six Nobel Prizes awarded in new institutional economics, including Eleanor Ostrom, the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics. Um, and from this perspective, institutional economics is all about looking at the you know, how legal rules, how the institutions, the, both really the law and culture, determine economic outcomes. So there's actually a huge academic field behind what I'm talking about. In Honduras, it turns out that there are some very smart uh, 
lawyers in the Honduran administration who understand this. So, for instance, I was down there uh, working on this project, and one of them pointed to a 10-story tall building in Tegucigalpa, and he said, see that? It's been empty for 10 years, just rotting. And he said it's because it's caught up in the courts. The Honduran courts, the old Spanish civil legal system, take forever to adjudicate anything, and as a consequence, a lot of uh, the country's, what otherwise would be the country's business, are locked up in the courts. Or conversely, a lot of people do simply bribe judges because they don't want to wait 10 years or whatever. And, right. and so the whole problem of developing world corruption is intimately bound up with dysfunctional legal systems. Um, you know, you, you can imagine if you're not going to invest in a country if you might have your investment tied up in courts for a decade or more. Um, you, you need a more efficient system. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, my my mind goes in so many different directions. I think, you know, what about the U.S. Um, really needs to be changed in our legal system for this to take hold? And I want you to, to not answer that yet because... We need to go to a break, but when we come back, let's talk about that. We'll be right back with Michael Strong. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Did you know that at the root of every business problem lies a communication issue? Communication Nation, a show that brings effective business communication practices to the masses, addresses a number of topics and talking points that impact your professional development, as well as business productivity and profitability. Host Jill Schiffelbein makes the theoretical tangible. Tune in each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be ready to become a better communicator with Communication Nation. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be? Or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're back when speaking with Michael Strong today. So, Michael, in our last segment, you were telling us about radical social entrepreneurship and how this really has moved around the world, how the legal system in other countries has really influenced 
poverty versus prosperity, that it really can support prosperity when it's done right. So tell us about the U.S. You know, I mean, it sounds to me like there are some lessons here that the U.S. could um, learn and could apply. How would you see it working here? Well, uh, that's a little bit more complicated. The, the, the simple big wins in, uh, in legal systems, or in, in many cases, are switching to a British common law legal system, and the U.S. already has one. So one of the reasons we are one of the most prosperous countries in the world is we happen to get a legal system that's good for commerce. Um, that said, there are a, a number of of potential wins um, depending on a lot of different variables. So one that's perhaps not glamorous is um, new institutional economy study water, and water in the West, of course, is a major issue. Mm, one of right. the things that it turns out is that uh, most Governments underprice water, and as a consequence, people are overusing water, which means that aquifers are being depleted. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there, uh, there's a water economist named, named David Zetland who is proposing strategies. In some ways, his strategy is to encourage the privatization of water with one special thing, which is uh, if it's privatized, must be free for personal use, because most of the water used is commercial. Something like 30% of water in California is for electric use, uh, for making electricity. And as a consequence, uh, electricity is underpriced because they sell water to electricity companies for way too little. And as a consequence, the aquifers are being depleted. So that's a, you know, a little bit technical. Um, right. You can see how there's an interesting solution. More interesting, perhaps, is Detroit, where I know somebody who is interested in um, – there's Belle Isle is an island just in the Detroit River between Detroit and Canada, and there's a proposal to create Belle Isle as its own city-state uh, wow. as a way to attract investment. Uh, the Michigan investment climate is gradually getting better, but it's not nearly as good as Texas, and mm-hmm. certainly not as good as Hong Kong. If you look at economic freedom rankings, Hong Kong and Singapore are the two most highly rated places in the world with respect to economic freedom, and they've been the fastest growing entities economically for the past 50 years. Uh, both Hong Kong and Singapore were about as poor as many African countries in 1960, and now they're wealthier than uh, Britain by a long mm-hmm. shot. So this this guy's uh, proposal is to create uh, Lockwood is his name is to create a city state on Belle Isle that excuse me would attract investment and create jobs for people in Detroit. Um, it's a fairly provocative uh, proposal, and I don't think the U.S. government's going to allow him to do it. But a variant that I've seen elsewhere is to have Native American tribes implement better legal systems. You'd have to have the tribe want to do this, of course, but uh, Native American tribes have the sovereignty that we promised them in the 19th century, Mm. but we really, we simply didn't respect those agreements. And and the whole whole thing about casino gambling and is a pushback against that. But instead of just casino gambling, ideally tribes should be places for all sorts of innovation. So I have heard of a tribe in Wyoming that's looking at creating a healthcare innovation zone where they could be exempt from certain U.S. laws and allow innovation there that would not be available in other parts of the U.S. So, I, you know, I, I'm looking at 
diverse ways in which we can create uh, exemptions from laws that constrain innovation to create islands of innovation that can create jobs and prosperity within the U.S. But it is tougher. Well, and so, you know, going back to the Detroit example of Bell Isle, when you said, well, the federal government probably isn't going to allow them to create its own city-state, my response to that is, well, what, what business is it of theirs? Isn't it the state of Michigan that makes that decision? Well, um, Michigan, the state of Michigan could allow Bell Isle to be exempt from Michigan laws, but uh, insofar as federal laws are constraining, yeah, you would need the permission of the U.S. government. So that that provides right. a, a pretty pretty severe uh, you know constraint. Right. So we we look for look for ways to get as far as we can within the boundaries of what's allowed in the U.S. Oh, interesting. So. You know, the organization that you uh, – did you start the organization in Honduras, the Grupo MGK organization? I did. I, it was a consortium I put together. I'm, I'm not a real estate developer, but uh, obviously this would have involved the creation – we're calling them startups – the creation of a new um, city, ultimately, but starting with mm. uh, office art. And so I put together – I'd been working in this area for – much of the last 10 years. So I put together uh, some real estate developers, some people who had experience in attracting business to real estate, the legal experts, uh, various people. You know, I've got a background in education, care. One of the things I'm most excited about, actually, is the creation of innovative social services. So I've been looking at innovative models for delivering uh, mental Mental illness care, and you know how do you how do you address issues such as child protective services? Um, you know, for me, I'm excited about entrepreneurial solutions to do everything in a new and better way. Right. So when you look at the whole city scale system, um, you know, no matter what it is, policing, people are unhappy about how almost everything is done, and, mm-hmm. and you know that's that's not to say everything the people doing it are bad. That's just a lot of these are legacy systems that were developed right. gradually and half out way over decades or centuries, mm-hmm. if we started from scratch, how could we create better systems? Right. Well, and so what would be an example of innovative health care? What would you change? So one of the tensions um, that we have in healthcare care is that if, in order to be healthy, it's clear that uh, habits, attitudes, behaviors um, have a major lifestyle factors, basically, have an immense influence on health. Chronic diseases account for at least 75% of health care costs. In addition, and you know, things like AIDS, cancer, uh, diabetes, heart disease, uh, those are immensely expensive. Then you know, if you add, you know, addictions are clearly a lifestyle sort of behavior. Right. Uh, a lot of accidents, auto, you know, most auto accidents are associated with drunk driving. So almost all healthcare costs are due to uh, some kind of behavioral characteristic. At the same time, um, you know, we don't want our behavior monitored. And so then the question is, you know, people people ridiculed uh, Bloomberg for uh, uh, outlawing sugar drinks. Yeah. So one of the things we're looking at is allowing people to have, um, you know, different kind of buy into different systems of different cultural norms and different costs associated with their insurance and different behavioral uh, monitoring.
monitoring associated with it. So if you want really low-cost insurance, um, you might have to accept uh, a lot of monitoring of your behavior. Um, right. It's a different example, but progressive insurance provided an option where you could have a device in your car that showed exactly um, how fast you were driving, if you were stopping at stoplights and everything. And if you allowed progressive insurance to monitor your driving behavior, you get a lower insurance rate. Right. Which makes sense, but I think one of the one of the challenges in the U.S. is, um, on the one hand, you know, we want to be free to do whatever we want, but on the other hand, we you know, want health with our health care. So one of the things we're doing is we're looking at uh, ways in which we can have different service providers allow different people different degrees of monitoring, and a lot of those will be religiously based. So Honduras is a very religious country, so it could well be that you know there are Catholic. Uh, healthcare providers with one kind of standard and say evangelical Christians with a different kind of healthcare standard. And over time, there may be a secular, you know, it's playing with the idea of, you know, the, the yoga health club, where if you do your yoga every day, you're going to get a cheaper benefit. Um, you know, you, you look at all of the factors that go into health, and a lot of it, you know, I think most people want to be healthy, but we need a peer group that uh, supports us in being healthy, and we would like to have our insurance rates reflect the efforts we make in being healthy. And frankly, maybe we need a system for getting on the case of people uh, that aren't engaging in good habits, but I think those systems should be voluntary. Well, you know, that makes me think of, of how quickly the shift occurred um, with smoking in public and drunk driving, how it went from, oh gosh, now that's just the way it is, to now it is absolutely unacceptable. And it seems like it, you know, I mean, it may have been many years coming, but it once it hit that tipping point, it was almost radical in people's perspective of it. Do you think that the same kind of movement could occur in that idea around providing health care according to one's behaviors? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just for myself to, to do some very shallow cliches, um, you know, I do have a social group that is, you know, very, you know, yoga, tai chi, health-oriented, and then I also have, you know, friends who like to go out and drink at night and so forth, and they're not mutually exclusive. There are certainly some yoga people who go out and drink at night, but you can see how... If you're hanging out with your friends who are, like to drink and party all the time, you just naturally fall into a different lifestyle than if you yeah. hang out with your friends that are into yoga and meditation all the time. Right. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if you saw your insurance bill every month either reflecting much lower prices because of all the yoga you did or higher prices because of all the drinking you did, you know, it might, might help you remind you, wow, this does make a difference in terms of my long-term well-being. Um, and, you know, I, I think that then it's, it becomes easy. Once you start to hang out in a social group, one of my favorite sayings is we're the average of the five people we hang, we spend the most time with. Yeah. And a lot of people make this sound like willpower and personal responsibility. I say, forget it. You know, if I'm hanging out with, you know, the yoga and meditation crowd, it's, it's easy. That's what I do. Right. If I'm hanging out with people and all I want to do is drink and party at night, man, it's hard to be the guy who goes to bed at 10 every night, you know? <laughs> Well, that is true. That is true. And peer pressure in a different way, right? Even so, for grown-ups. Yeah, even for grown-ups. Even for grown-ups, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I, I think about when I think about habits, I think about how um, the work habits, the 
working unbelievable hours, the, you know, commuting long distances, you know, this, this kind of practice that has become the norm in the U.S. and is becoming the norm in other countries, um, you know, that's the kind of, those, that, that's really part of, has become part of the fabric of the culture in, in many societies. That's not just a habit. You know, it seems like something like that would also need to change in order to change health habits or in order to change, you know, big a big perspective. How do you well, make that happen? Uh, no, absolutely. Although it's interesting, most of the people I know tend to work out of their homes and work virtually. And maybe they do have an office they go into one or two days a week. But there's a whole world evolving in which people have a lot of autonomy. There are a lot, right. a lot of entrepreneurial startup teams where the people get together when they need to get together. They're apart when they need to be apart. And they're... Yep. Know, very focused, and I, I know a lot of people without a job. There's a famous book called Free Agent Nation by Daniel Pink, more than yeah. eight old, old now that you know everybody's doing their own thing, and that allows you to you can incorporate you know your exercise routine, you know your spiritual routine, whatever you want to do in those kind of lifestyles. I would say even in conventional workplaces, there's a huge range. With some workplaces having a lot more flexibility than others, and uh, you know just things as basic as when you eat and when you exercise, it's nice to have a flexibility. I, I would rather yeah. go seven or eight at night, but maybe take an hour or two off in the middle of the afternoon to go work out than, you know, have this rigid nine to five with rigid lunch hour. And I think that mm-hmm. more young people are demanding it, more employers are feeling comfortable with this. And so I, I, I actually see um, quality of life becoming a much bigger factor in people's professional lives. And I think it's driven by the most creative and talented people in society. And so as, as these people more or less demand quality of life, you know, the, the Googleplex is famous for being, you know, having lots of recreational facilities and yeah. great food and things like that. You know, in order to attract the best people, you need to provide a really high quality of life experience. And mm-hmm. then if people love their work, you know, we work all the time. I work all the time, but, you know, yeah. it's when and how exactly I want to engage. And that's different than, you know, the alarm wakes up in the morning, you know, commute, and, ah, it's horrible. Right, right. Well, I agree with you, and I'm fortunate that I'm one of those people who gets to design my day, right? You know, and yes, I have clients, and we make agreements about when, you know, I will be there, when I will serve them in some way, and, you know, I get to go to Pilates when I want to. It's like things like that. And it's been that way for many years for me, and what I know is that... um, to have to go back to a structured conventional role in an organization would be really a challenge, right? Be really a challenge for me. It's like once you get a taste of it, it's tough to then have that yep. structure imposed, right? And a lot of the most important work that needs to be done is creative work. And I think with creatives in particular, you need to give them, you know, you, you can't kind of force it into a box. Creatives need right. to have the time to, 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 you know, take a break when they need to take a break and do things in their own way and have their own environment. And, you know, I, I, you know I'm interested in creative education systems so that all people can have a greater proportion of that kind of uh, creative capacity. But, you know, certainly the cutting edge is all about, hey, let's let's make these people be incredibly productive. In order right. to help them be incredibly productive, we need to really uh, you know, give them an environment in which they can be effective. I like it. 
We're going to have more to talk about with Michael Strong when we come right back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back with Michael Strong on Leading Conversations today. So, Michael, you education is near and dear to your heart. You have been a longtime innovative educator. And you mentioned uh, in our earlier segment that, you know, having online, access to online classes really isn't going to change culture so much. It isn't going to change um, person's life and who they become in the world. Um, you know, we've got MIT, Stanford, we've got Harvard, we've got all these Ivy League and, and such high-quality organizations saying, here, you can learn everything we teach. You know, we won't give you a degree for it, but not yet anyway, um, but here you go. And, you know, you're saying that, well, nice, but that's really not the, the solution. Well, um, the way I would put it is there are a huge population of people for whom the online courses are a fantastic or godsend because there are plenty of, I'm talking at K-12 now, but also at university, there are plenty of bright, motivated young people across America, around the world, who are taking advantage of these courses. They're growing rapidly. I love it. That said, if, for instance, one cares about inner-city America, I don't think that online education can have much of an impact in inner-city America. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time 
in inner city schools. And one of the things that I've done that's been very effective is I spend a lot of time in dialogue. My first book, The Habit of Thought from Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice, is all about using dialogue in the classroom. And, you know, if I can spend every day, you know, talking to kids, engaging these kids, what these kids need is they need to see why it's relevant to focus on school at all. Many of them, you know, their, their parents were not educated. They did not come from a household in which ideas were discussed or school was valued necessarily. Some do, but not many, many of them do not. And so their natural propensity is simply to go to school and go through the motions. And insofar as school consists of you know, didactic work and how to learn academic materials, these kids are bored silly. And as soon as they become adolescents, and, you know, in adolescence, you get all the whole telling you to be interested in the opposite sex, sometimes same sex, but usually opposite sex, and and also a hierarchy. The whole issue of hierarchy becomes more important, social hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when a lot of kids go into gangs, both males and females get swallowed up by the gangs because there's kind of a tribal structure that makes sense to them. And school is just meaningless, just meaningless. And so I think it's really important to create meaningful experiences in what is now secondary school in particular for these kids. And in order to create meaningful experiences, you need humans relating to them. You need to create a healthy tribe at school that is more compelling than is say the gang or whatever other dysfunctional groups who might be part of. Um, for that, you know, I I started charter schools. I think No Child Left Behind has made charter schools more restrictive than I'd like mm-hmm. because they they kind of enforce all sorts of things um, just on teachers. I always preferred to hire basically human beings that I would love to be around my kids rather than necessarily certified teachers. Some certified teachers qualified. But for me, it was not about did they take education courses. It's, is this a really uh, you know intelligent, engaging human being who can be a positive influence on a young person's life? And I, I remember one point uh, talking about inner city situations where I met a guy who was an ex-convict, black guy, who was doing the inner city uh, programs, and he was just... Such such a big heart. I thought, wow, I can see why he's effective. Um, mm-hmm. But he didn't even graduate from high school. And I thought, okay, suppose as a school principal, I wanted to hire uh, ex-convict without a high school diploma. I don't think I'm going to get away with that. Certainly yeah. not much I've left behind. So, you know, we need to have the freedom to create healthy, positive communities uh, with real human-to-human interactions in order to turn things around in the inner city. And, you know, there are a lot of a lot of causes, but for me, the, the cause of uh, helping inner-city America change is domestically the most important cause I think there is. So, you know, I mean, when I look at why the concentration of poor schools, poor education, poor services happens in cities, um, and and not just in cities, but typically inner cities, um, you know, how did we get there? I mean, I know that's a long conversation, but, you know, it just, what, can you sum up, how did we get there as a society? Sure. No, that's that's uh, not a simple thing, but I, I think culture is immensely important. I think one of the problems is um, certainly there's poverty, but uh, there the the poverty is I would say the salient issue. It's it really is a cultural issue, and I, I've got I come from a working class family with a lot of dysfunctional. You know, I happen to be white, but a lot of dysfunction uh, in my family, and I can see you know people in the family that developed good habits, peer relationships, 
you know, were involved in healthy subcultures. They did fine. People, for whatever reason, got involved in less successful subcultures, often had a lot of problems. So, you know, earlier I was talking about my own thing of, uh, you know, do I hang out? Uh, with meditators, where I got drinking with uh, you know other guys, I, and you know so it's tongue in cheek. I think for a lot of a lot of uh, low income people, these decisions are much more important. And if if you know if we allow uh, say kids, young people to be saturated in cultures where the norm is to be anti school or anti education, or the norm is to be involved with you know drugs and alcohol and gangs and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I think we really need to find ways to provide these people in the inner city to have that. There are healthy, good people in those locations. We need to find ways to help the healthy, good ones grow and uh, and the more damaging ones shrink. And I think some of that actually has to do with supporting inner city churches in a big way. I recently was uh, in touch with a man who created a program to try to reduce the extent to which inner city kids shoot each other. And it's very much faith-based. It's based in the traditional African-American uh, often Baptist and other evangelical. And he wanted to create a, a cause-related marketing campaign to this. And I said, you know, the, the low-cost demographic, lifestyles uh, of health and sustainability, are not going to buy products that support uh, African-American churches. I mean, I, I'd love to be wrong about that. But, you know, if you, if you market a product on the sustainability side, people buy it. But uh, I, I think that people don't realize the extent to which inner-city churches are probably one of the most important sources of uh, hope, and I'd like to see the, the schools work very closely with the churches. Um, you know, we, we need to find a way to, one by one, bring kids around so they're part of a, some kind of positive culture, and we need to marginalize uh, the damaging culture. So, you know, when you speak about dialogue happening in education and, you know, even even just throughout society and how that, you know, shifts the way people behave and how that shifts the way they understand uh, opportunities, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation these days about the feminine and masculine leadership traits, and that doesn't necessarily mean gender. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, dialogue is typically viewed as more of a feminine trait that's utilized in leadership, and and yet, to focus on gender, um, there seems to be an increase in women in leadership roles, whether it's in government, the legal system, or organizations, um, it seems that there is, um, like the tide is, is moving. What do you think, what is your perspective? Do you think that women do lead differently than men? Well, I, first of all, I think it's fabulous that the world is becoming more diverse and pluralistic in a lot of ways. So I think there's no one one definite style. Um, but just you know, take the the case close to home. And it's funny you talk about dialogue being more feminine. And my wife is a very assertive uh, woman, uh, and she's you know an entrepreneur. She created a. a one company that was successful uh, for a number of years. Now she's in her second company. And her style in some ways is 
masculine in the sense of, you know, hard driving forward. That said, one of the things she likes to celebrate is being able to remain feminine while she's in her roles. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful, she was recently speaking in Gabon, and she's on this panel, and there's a photo of five men in business suits looking bland and boring, and she's in bright red and bright yellow, you know, skirt and blouse. And, you know, she she used to be in Silicon Valley, and she'd love to go into board meetings dressed brightly and colorfully and with cleavage and being a woman. And so, you know, even when, in her case, you know, the, there's a, a certain style, there's also a desire. She's a she's an advocate of, you know, one of the things, she spoke at Harvard uh, conference on, on women in business, and there were, like, you know, it's all all a Boston colleges, like 3,000 young women there, and they were all dressed in these black suits trying to get jobs, Goldman Sachs and whatnot. She's like, right. come on, well, be, be a woman. Um, you know, I'm going another direction, I do think that uh, in terms of cultural change at the office, things like bringing the children to work, to work uh, nursing at the workplace, having more flexibility, earlier we were talking about that, the free agent nation sort of thing, I think that there are some women, and I, I've known some really great women-led companies, where they're much more flexible about these things because, say, being able to be even just somewhat flexible about childcare has such a huge impact on the life of women. You know, you could say, well, men should be have just as much responsibility, and some do, but realistically, if women can, you know, be free to go pick up their kids in the middle of the day at school or whatever, it's just so much better. And so I see a lot of women-led businesses being really pragmatic in a healthy way about how mm-hmm. to balance, say, child care and, and work. And I think mm-hmm. that is good for men as well, because, you know, our lives don't follow a strict 95 routine. I think as long as we're creative, productive, focused on what's good for the company, best for the team, I think we can mm-hmm. all have lives that are much, much more humane, including balancing family and work for men and women. Well, I love the way you frame that because, you know, that's really all about how to live life. That really isn't about, um, you know, one particular style of showing up in an organization. Um, You know, but I do notice, you know, I live in Silicon Valley these days, and I do notice that most of the entrepreneurs – are male. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that's part of the culture of Silicon Valley in particular, or, or do you think that that's part of the culture of entrepreneurship? Well, uh, both. Certainly, I think it's accentuated in Silicon Valley. Um, a number of years ago, um, I'm forgetting her name, but I met the woman who created uh, Bring Your Daughter to Work Day. And um, how it'll come to me, but she had she had the uh, organization was promoting women's entrepreneurship, and she said based on her research that women start companies at the same rate that men do. Make mine a million is the name of her organization, but that most women did not want to grow their organizations. Uh, some of that was a false modesty, but a lot of that was they were concerned that if they grew their companies, that then they wouldn't have time for family and life. And one of the things mm. she was trying to explain to women is actually, as you grow your company, you can hire professionals to do a lot of the work, and so actually you might have more time for your family and life. So her right. whole goal was to help women see that, uh, yes, it's great to start companies, but really growing companies. We The world needs more women, substantial companies. 
Um, and I thought that was a really uh, kind of helpful way to look at it because the, the need is to help women grow their own companies in a big way. Um, and I think that is happening, but it's a slow process. It's a very slow process. You know, I it, it just fascinates me because, you know, in my work as an executive coach, I work with CEOs and senior leaders, and most of them are men because most of them, mm-hmm. most of the people in those roles happen to be men. And when I, what I've seen happen in the last few years is that the women who are in those roles don't any longer have the sense that they have to act like men uh, Mm -hmm. or they have to deny their, whether it's a feminine trait or a different style of leadership. Um, And so, you know, when I, uh, that gives me a lot of, of, hope and encouragement that there is more a uh, meeting of the minds coming forward. And and I, I believe that the whole, even, you know, what's called intrapreneurship, right, you know, inside organizations mm-hmm. being more entrepreneurial in thought and the way to approach um, opportunities and problems is becoming more well-known and more accepted. And so, you know, there is a shift happening even inside conventional organizations. And, you know, the work that you're doing, Michael, is critical for changing minds. You know, and that that really, you know, is, is what has to happen, right? Minds have to change to be open to anything else changing. And your work really touches that a lot. So what I know is that people are going to want to know more about you and more about your work. How can they do that? Well, thank you. First, I've, Nell, Mer- Nell Merlino is the name of the uh, founder of Make Mine a Million Foundation. So I want to endorse her in a big way and her uh, work yeah. for what you just said. Um, they can find me at Radical Social Entrepreneurs, RadicalSocialEntreps.org, and you can sign up for a newsletter there. Um, I'm also part of Conscious Capitalism. I'm on the board of Conscious Capitalism, so that's ConsciousCapitalism.org. And PeaceThroughCommerce.org is another one of the organizations that I founded, and if you're interested in that, uh, I'm also on the advisory board of that. So uh, I welcome having all the input and support we can get for all of our projects and any way I can support people, uh, you know, subject to time constraints that are realistic. We, we all need to work together to create a better world. Well, and there you go. That sums it up. Michael Strong, thank you so much for being with us today. It has once again been a privilege, and I just love talking with you. So we'll have you back again on Leading Conversations. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Take care. You too. Remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.